Amen. Boy, the five of you sound like you're happy to be in church today. Amen? I got to tell you, I, I am firmly a believer in the late August lull, where people, you know, at the, when you come to church, it's just like, I feel like it's like, okay, I slept in maybe three or four days this week where I normally don't sleep in at all. And so, you know, when you get too much sleep, that kind of fogginess you get in your brain, I feel that, that, that that's the season we get into in the late, in the mid to late seasons of fall. So we got to fight that this morning, Amen. God's presence is here, the Holy Spirit is here, and uh, the lazy, hazy days of summer are still here, thank God, but uh, we're, we're happy to be in church and we're grateful to be able to look in his word together, amen? I just want to reiterate what Pastor Connie said, you know, Next Gen uh, Youth Group, is, uh, Youth Camp is going on this week, throughout the week, just pray for them, will you? Pray that God shows up in power, that people get their lives changed. Uh, you'll hear this morning how God changed my life at a youth camp. And uh, yeah, it's exciting days. I believe that, you know, when you, when you, camp, the reason camp is so powerful is because I believe that people go there. Sometimes when you come to church, there's people who show up for the first time, and I'm so excited. If you're one of those people, I'm so excited you're here. I hope this is not your last. But a lot of times people come to church and they don't know why they're here. They're looking for something. They're searching for something. And, and we, we love that, and we welcome you, and we, and we trust that you will find what you're looking for this morning in the person of Jesus Christ. But when you go to camp, a lot of times everybody goes for one reason. They know why they're there. They're going to focus. They're going to make it about Jesus. They go plan to be there, to focus on God. They go with one thing in mind. And people wonder why things happen in camp, because purpose and single-mindedness, you know, when, you, when people agree together, Great things happen. Amen? So I'm just believing for, for next-gen camp this week, believing that God's going to do amazing things, and that we're going to have testimonies of God's saving power, healing power, and transformational power. Amen? Will you agree with me for that this week? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Um, yeah, let's get into the Word. So my uh, sermon this morning is a little different. I've called it This Is My Testimony. You'll, you'll probably recognize it uh, from the song we began, and I understand that that song's kind of new to you guys, so we've done it for the last couple of weeks. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of background about myself. I realize I've been here for now six or seven weeks, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, uh, but uh, I haven't really got into a little bit about who I am. So I want to take you into the Word uh, as well in James chapter 1. But I do want to share a little bit of my own testimony with you this morning and just give you a little bit, maybe deeper picture of, of who I am and where I come from. And, where, and, and yeah, I'll try not to give you the full like novel version with all the chapters. I was joking with uh, Fudzi earlier in the week. I said, when I was reading down through my, my outline for this sermon, I said, it reads like, like book chapters. I said, so I'll try not to take you through the whole book this morning, but highlight a few parts that I believe were transformational in my life, and hopefully in the process encourage you as well. Amen? So a testimony, I think we misunderstand what a testimony means sometimes in the church. Uh, <laughs> I've heard multiple testimonies in my life. Some of them have moved me greatly, and many of you probably remember the, the, the time where we had the testimony services. 
You know, we're in the middle of the service in Newfoundland. We would have the morning service and the evening service, and we would have a testimony time in, in the middle of each service. And sometimes it would go for quite a, uh, an extended period of time. And sometimes people would talk for 20 minutes. And, and my 14-year-old brain didn't understand what was going on. I'm like, I, I remember t- talking to my parents. I'm like, I don't think people understand what a testimony is, mom and dad. And but yet, there were so many that encouraged me, people who told of how God miraculously healed them, how the transformational power of God came in their life when Jesus entered their heart. And those stories stick with me. And so, testimony, just to be clear, I believe testimony is evidence or proof provided by the existence or appearance of something. So my hope is that the something is me today, that I am the testimony of my life. I am the testimony of Jesus Christ's saving power and Holy Spirit direction in my life. My existence, my appearance, who I am today is my testimony. My prayer is that my life is evidence of God's love and faithfulness towards me. In Christian circles, like it, it can also refer Sometimes say, say my testimony, we're talking about the actual day that Jesus saved us. And we all have a testimony. And if you don't, today I hope yours begins today. Amen? Who am I today as a result of the creative and redemptive power of Jesus Christ? Uh, much of my life and story revolves around the call that God has placed on my life. The call that I did not at first willingly answer. And sometimes we face trials and tests in life because life brings trials and tests. I mean, this is just the way it is. We know that life is not easy, but Scripture suggests on times that God brings or allows tests and trials to come in order to develop in us God-given strength, character, and resolve. And the comfort from this is understanding that God does everything with a purpose. He is single-minded in focus. When it comes to his children, he is single-minded in focus. He is focused on our restoring the relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. He is focused on restoring that relationship. And the big work of that was done on the cross. And everything that, that we, we enjoy today is because of the work that was done on the cross. We can be saved today. We can worship and we can sense his presence as we did today as we worship because of what was done on the cross. And we begin to understand salvation because of the justifying power of the cross. And today we live out that salvation and work it out in our lives through sanctification. And one day, praise God, we're going to be glorified. Amen? To be single-minded in society today is not um, exactly in vogue. It's not something that people uh, would really focus on. Um, Open-mindedness and acceptance of everyone's ideologies, no matter the validity of the ideologies, is the prevailing peer pressure of our day. It is the prevailing pressure that, that rests upon all our shoulders today is to, to be so open-minded that you don't disagree with anybody. To act like there is no absolute truth and that everything is true for whoever it is true for. And I believe that this is a lie that the enemy is trying to plant in our hearts to point us away from the one truth 
He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, this is relatable to say the least. I mean, we sometimes get caught between ideas, ours and God's, simply because we do not ask God for guidance. And I think we all can relate to this to some degree. I do not have a story, I'm going to tell you right now, that's full of rebellion. I don't have a story that, that tells you how I overcame drug addiction uh, or any form of what we the church have termed backsliding per se. I haven't got much of a dramatic story that way. I do not have a dramatic story about how God rescued me from a pit of despair. I've had a pretty good life. I have amazing parents. I have two amazing brothers. And I enjoy all of our families and, and uh, the beautiful ladies we've got to marry and the kids that we've been blessed with. But my story does at times include stubbornness. You don't know me well enough to know that that's, you'd probably be like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, yeah, that's right. My wife, I'm surprised she's quiet if she's in a room. Yeah. <laughs> First time for everything. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. Stubbornness. It involves stubbornness. It involves reluctantly disobedience. It does involve frustration with the church. And it involves doubt. James 1, 2-8 is a passage that I've gone back to many, 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 many times over the years. And it says this, and there's some hard truth in this. Beginning with the first four words, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Father, I only ask today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open this word to us. Lord, you walk this journey with me, Lord, which is why I'm on this platform right now and not somewhere else doing something I shouldn't be. Holy Spirit, again, be the primary communicator in this room. We open ourselves to what you would have us to hear, what you would have us to learn this morning, O oh God. So just be with us. Give me clarity of thought and speech, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So you're probably learning by now I'm a bit of an emotional dude. I cry a little bit. And uh, people ask me, is this, wow, you're really emotional. I says, yeah, it's funny. It's not with everything. I have watched crazy movies that I probably should have bawled my eyes through, but for some reason I can I can separate reality from non-reality very quickly. I've been moved by, by some true stories, but, but not really much on the screen have ever made me cry. Not much in life makes me cry, but Jesus makes me cry.
the way that God speaks to my heart breaks me in a way that's uh, different than anything else. There's nothing like it. The Holy Spirit's voice, there's nothing like it. His presence, there's nothing like it. I can't compare it to anything. But he moves me in a way that all my emotions seem to come out of my eyes, which I'm not going to lie, it's kind of annoying sometimes. Especially when you hear me blowing snot bubbles and stuff like that. Nobody needs to hear that stuff. Good grief. Which is probably why I'm just going to say it out loud because I keep forgetting it. Somebody get me a box of Kleenex for crying out loud. Just put one up here somewhere. Hide it. I don't care where it goes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, pure joy. Can you imagine when you're going through the toughest time of your life and Jesus says, you know, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds. And we know that there's trials of many kinds, right? There's, there's all kinds of trials. We can list the different things that we've gone through in life, the struggles physically, mentally, financially. And yes, persecution would, would fall into this. And maybe James is talking more specifically about pers- persecution here. But when you go through these things, when you consider pure joy and you go through these trials and you go through this testing, what it tells us here in this passage is that it leads when you persevere through these things, it leads to maturity. When you allow God to walk with you through these moments, it leads to maturity. When you have the fortitude, you trust the Holy Spirit to help you persevere through these moments, it does lead, through matur- lead to maturity. And the one that gets me all the time, because then it puts it all back on myself, it says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea. But even before that, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask. And I think back over my life, how many times have I been in that moment and, and my first inclination wasn't to ask for wisdom when he tells me in his scripture that he gives it generously. And then as a Newfoundlander to talk about doubts as the waves of the sea blown and tossed in the wind, whew, that hits home. Uh, I've been out on, uh, on the sea in uh, boats before, and uh, I felt the wind toss me when a motor was pushing one way and the wind would toss us another way. I know what that means. And it talks about the dangerous life that is led when someone decides to be double-minded to be caught between decisions, to be caught in a place where you cannot decide what you're doing. (laughs) So Jesus called me and spoke to my heart for the first time when I was very young, probably my son's age, which is pretty pivotal to me right now. I've been realizing that a lot lately. When I was about eight years old, it's the first time I felt God's call on my life. And there was experiences that happened around those times that I don't even remember. I remember one time... We were coming home in a car, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, and my mom and dad would correct me if I was wrong, but I believe it was after we saw at this person's house, and it was, we saw this amazing miracle, and we're driving home, and mom said that I was in the back seat, and all of a sudden I just started to screech and cry like I was afraid of something, and she turned around, and she spoke the name of Jesus, and she said I was quiet, and I don't remember that moment, but but... It sticks with me because I believe that that may have been the first time really in, in my life that I thought, my goodness, I need his presence. I feel God's calling, but I, I mean, at eight years old, what, what do I, I mean, I don't even know if I want Jesus on my toes at eight years old. You know, you're just figuring it out. But I, my earliest recollection of God speaking to my heart was a long time ago. 
I'm going to fast forward ahead to when I was 16 because <laughs> you don't want a year-by-year year <laughs> description of my life, trust me. And let's go right into youth camp. Uh, in Newfoundland, you know, Pentecostal theology was up front and center. It was taught from the day I was born. And, and I, I, I appreciate this teaching so much that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everybody and it's something you need in your life. And at times, it almost, I almost felt so much pressure as a teenager to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. It almost made me feel like I was less than. And nobody, made me, nobody did that to make me feel that way, but it was just part of the, the culture. And nobody would, would say that it was ever taught to me that way because they want to make people feel like that if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're not as good as the, those who are baptized in the Holy Spirit because that's a lie. That's not the truth. Baptism of the Holy Spirit... The reason that people want you to is because it's for the empowering of service in the kingdom of God. But I can't, you know, you can't control how you feel in the circumstances. And I felt a great pressure to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so I went every time. I was seeking God. I was asking, you know, and I was asking and I was asking. Never really dealt with my call to this point. And I remember one time at youth camp, I just got sick of going to the altar and asking God. And so I remember talking to God. I was sitting in the pew. My friends, you know, like we did, all the boys, teenage boys, we sat in the pew with our head down like this so nobody would get eye contact with us. I remember talking to God and saying, God, I'm going to go to the altar by myself. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to stand next to that big metal post. And I'm just going to pray to you and I'm going to talk to you and I'm just going to ask your Holy Spirit. Just do whatever you want to do. I've asked. I'm not asking anymore. And I went up and I remember I put my hands above my head and I just began to praise God. And he baptized me in the Holy Spirit. And I just think we put so much pressure on that sometimes. That's a different sermon. I don't want to go down that road, but what that did to me was it put a massive magnifying glass on my call at 16 years old. And the Holy Spirit come flooding into me and reminding me that I have spoken to you when you were a boy. And it's time for you to start walking that path. And uh, I didn't. <laughs> I never turned from God. I was all about God. I was all about the Holy Spirit. I wanted the Holy Spirit in my life, but I belligerently said no. And I was determined because I had some things, some doubts in my mind that I needed to work through, and I was so determined. And so I put my, my energy towards not becoming a pastor for those next few years. I remember, I, went, I remember almost as soon as I got back to school that fall, you know, we, we get into that time where they start talking about what you're going to do for university. And I remember going to our guidance counselor, and I said, you know, uh, let's... I remember as a kid, you know, wanting to be a marine biologist. Let's look into that. And I looked into that, and, and I can't remember why I got turned off that, but, but then it got switched over to being a helicopter pilot, which I'm not going to lie, is still a bit of a bucket list thing for me. And I was going to be a helicopter pilot, and I remember we looked into it, and, and it was an exorbitantly expensive thing to do, <laughs> and we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up, but that, that's neither here nor there, and then I went looking around, and I said, well, God, I love sports. You know, I love everything to do with activity and stuff. I said, what can I do? And so I started studying, and I came across the kinesiology. Started looking into it, and I ended up heading off the university 
uh, to get a Bachelor of Education in, in Physical Education. And I was going to go off. I had it planned out. I was going to go to Dalhousie and get my kinesiology degree and become a physiotherapist. And the dream was to become a coach at a, at a college level to some degree. That was kind of the one that I didn't know if I was going to be able to achieve. But that was, that was what I was going to aim for. But I asked myself, you know, why did I doubt? And in retrospect, I've narrowed it down to three things. Uh, first of all, it was my view behind the curtain. Uh, I was a PK, still am a PK, proud PK, very proud of both my, my dad, who was a pastor, and my mom, who was a pastor. Both of them are ordained ministers, and I respect them and love them. And they are my primary mentors to this day. And uh, I encourage you parents that if you're looking for someone in the church to teach your kid about Jesus, be the first one to do it, please. Be the example in your home. We get them for an hour, a couple hours a week, and we're happy to bless them and to feed into them, but be their primary mentors. Teach them about Jesus. Live it in front of them. That's what lasts. That's what lasts. But my, as a pastor, you know, like, I mean, I'm, even now, you know, like sometimes, you know, you try to protect your kids from certain things, maturity, even from people's humanity, really, is what it is. And, you know, I got to see some things that kind of turned me off. The ways that people have treated my parents, Christian. It was tough. It didn't compute with me what I understood about Jesus. It didn't compute with what God spoke to me through the power of the Holy Spirit. It didn't, they didn't line up, and I struggled with it. I mean, I don't want to get into too much more detail than that, but second thing was my uncertainty. Um, would I be becoming a pastor because it's what I know? Or because it's what my dad and mom were? Or is it truly because I am called? It's all I knew. The lifestyle is all I knew. My whole life, people told me I looked like my dad, and even to this day, acted like him, etc. I remember walking up the road, and if I, I feel like I may have told you this before, but I remember walking up the road in Port Hope Simpson, Labrador one time when I was about 8 or 9 or 10 years old, and somebody stopped from behind and said, you must be Claude Kipnuk's son. And I'm like, you could tell that from coming from behind? I was kind of shocked by that, but apparently I look a lot like my dad. I don't know how I walk like him, seeing my dad had an arthritic hip and walk with a very significant limp, but maybe I just, I told him, I said, I adopted your strut. But my whole life, people told me I looked like my dad, I acted like him. It was almost like a writing was on the wall. I've even watched myself, since we've been recording ourselves on video, you know, do things. I watched myself one time put my hands on my chest like this when I was preaching. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's my dad. <laughs> I say that with pride in my voice today, trust me. But it was almost like the writing was on the wall. It was like everything was funneling me towards it. And I was just like, I, I'm like, that can't be good enough. It has to be my own personal thing. So I had uncertainty from that. And then I had my insecurities, feelings of inadequacies. Because I ran from God in my pivotal years, 16, 17, I didn't preach. I didn't teach. I avoided anything that looked like ministry because I had determined in my mind I'm not doing this. 
And so I had these insecurities. I didn't have the talents I thought necessary. I was frightened to death to speak publicly. I remember in grade nine, the first time I was spoke in front of a class was because I had to, because if I didn't, I'd fail. And I did the bare minimum. I got 66% on my speech that I presented. And it was, yeah, I'm glad that wasn't recorded. Whew. But I was scared to death. I got up there, I looked down, and I read, and I'm, I got out of there. I'm like, I did what I had to do to get a passing grade, and don't ever make me do that again. But my path to doubt led me to university. I ended up at Memorial University in Newfoundland, and, and, uh, and the, the year that reshaped my life. The only way I can describe that. So much about that year fit my lifestyle and wants. I found friends who were Christians who were in a basketball league and, and a whole bunch of guys that I had played. In, I played basketball all through high school, so I went to provincials and different things. We, were, we had a great team and went to multiple tournaments, and I, and I found these guys in university that I had played against and got to know them. And so I got invited to basketball league, so I had that going. You know, the whole athletic end of, of becoming a phys ed teacher, I had to... I was working out three times a week, and, and I was in a swim class, and I had to, to train to run a mile in a certain amount of time, and it all just fit what I, I felt like socially and, and physically I wanted to be and, wanted, and who I thought I should be. And I was living with my brother, which made the transition socially even better, easier, and, and the whole social life thing was fun, and it was just the first few months, really, I felt pretty incredible. And I was just like, ha ha, told you God, I got this thing figured out. Now, if you could just bless me in this direction, I'd be very happy. That year, I was determined to maintain my faith, although I was running from God. Again, I never rebelled from God. I love the Spirit's presence. I do this day. But I did rebel against His plan, and I did disobey His call. And still, somehow, my relationship with Him grew deeper and the magnifying glass that was put on my call when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at 16, you know, was still there magnifying his plan and consequently magnifying my rebellion. I had a long walk to Mun. We lived at Crosby Street in Newfoundland, St. John's, Newfoundland. Not that you're ever going to know where that is, but go look it up. It's fun. Go to Newfoundland. It's worth it. 25-minute walk one way. Sometimes I did it three or four times a day. And on that trip, I passed, I think, two, four churches every day. I were walking by them, and it seemed like time slowed by as I walked by them. <laughs> two or three, four times a day, you know, God, there's these reminders. Sitting there as God slowly began to help me overcome my doubts, you know. But I was so stubborn, persistent. There were weeks when I, I would go to evening service at Elam Pentecostal Church by myself. Whether anybody else would go or not, I was there. And I actually kind of liked it when I went by myself. My brother was, was faithful, still is a faithful, tender church. My older brother, who I was in school with. Uh, and he's a board member now and loves Jesus. His family loves Jesus. So grateful for that. Um, but I, I used to like it when I got to go to church by myself because I began to work things out. And again, just like I did at 16, I used to just go and just, just praise God. But isn't it funny how when you just praise God, He reminds you of where you should be and what you should be doing. I wasn't asking for wisdom. Should have been. 
I was just praising God because I was like, God, you know, I know, you know, you're going to bless this direction eventually. I'm going to feel comfortable in this direction eventually. So I'm just going to push into you until you do. And oh gosh, I never did. <laughs> Sitting there as God slowly began to help me overcome my doubts, bringing me back to this single-minded focus. I developed a great affection for the person of the Holy Spirit at this time. My relationship with God grew so much. The need to respond and deal with my double-mindedness was overwhelming. I got myself, you know, in, in relationships that, again, I'd, I never compromised my faith and everything, but I remember one time I had met this girl. This is where everybody's story goes at some point, right? And I was feeling like she was showing attention to me and I was showing attention to her. And I remember one day uh, we were walking out of the school and she wanted to go into the breezeway before she went home. And the breezeway was the campus bar. And I was just like, not that going in there and waiting for her friends or anything would have sent me to hell. I'm not saying that. But I remember the Spirit of God speaking to me so clearly in that moment that if you go in there right now, the direction of your life is going to change. And uh, it's a pivotal memory in my mind, even as I'm standing here. And so I walked away and kind of damaged that relationship a little bit. But then I get to what I call the conversation part one. I'm lying in bed one night. My brother and I were up studying for exams. We're getting towards the end of the semester. And, and because we were in an apartment, we had to share the costs. We, our friend had one room, and my brother, like we did most of our life, shared a room. And so we're there lying in bed at 2 a.m. after studying. We both got to get up for an exam the next day. And, and I, I said, I began to talk to Walt about God and about, you know, ministry and what it would be like. And, he's, and I remember him at some point saying, you know, well, if you're, if you're going to go into ministry, you've got to be called. And before he got the words out, I remember yelling at him, I am called. And I'm like, oh, man. I said it out loud. <laughs> Stupid accountability. Uh, I remember, and then my brother just very simply said, you need to talk to mom and dad. And I was like, yeah, I have to talk to mom and dad. And I'm going to tell you, I lived in that bed. I didn't sleep very much that night because fear. Oh, am I going to do this? Am I really going to do this? I know what goes on, you know, and I had determined in my mind I understood what, it, what being a pastor was, but. 22 years later, you know, you, you learn a lot more about those things. And then uh, I, I go to what I call conversation part two, uh, <laughs> which was a conversation I had with mom and dad that year on May 1997. And I remember sitting in the living room and I said, I got to talk to you, mom and dad, about something. And uh, mom has always had a backdoor view into my spiritual understanding of things feel like it's kind of unfair. <laughs> Not really. I, I'm so grateful for that, actually. But I remember sitting down and with all the fear of my life. I'm like, I just spent nine to $10,000, much more for you guys now, on a year of university. I was like, man, did I waste that? You know, and I was like, how are my parents going to feel about all this? And I remember telling them, I said, I think I need to go to Bible college. And uh, I don't know if my parents remember it this way, but my mom doesn't have much of a choice. She ran in the house. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. 
running around the house like a great, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. It's about time you figured it out. And I'm like, really? Like I said, she knew, she knew more things about me spiritually before I did, I think. And my dad, honestly, in my memory, he looked like he saw a ghost. Because the male pragmatic mind, my dad thinks, what are you getting into, my son? And I, to this day, someone comes and tells me you have to call a God of my life, I'm probably going to try for the next, I don't know how long, to convince you you don't. And if you still persist at the end, you probably do. But it was a pivotal moment. And, you know, so then uh, i got to move to this story because, like I said, it's a long one. <laughs> but then, you know, I'm off to Bible college. And then we go back to those three reasons why I didn't accept my call at the beginning. And the first one and the middle one, the insecurity one, just came flooding in. Because then I'm like, oh, my goodness, the time I wasted. My dad has played guitar my entire life. I never learned how to play guitar. I could have been preaching. I could have been teaching in Sunday school or teaching youth or doing different things. and stuff. I could have been doing all these things. I didn't do anything. And I was there, and I, all I saw was talent everywhere I looked. You couldn't walk down the hall with somebody who didn't have a keyboard set up in there, and they're singing. Or, or someone was looking for opportunities to preach, or I was talking to somebody, and they were like, I preached four or five times. The pastor used to get me to preach all the time, and I'm like, man, I don't even know where to start and I felt inadequate and uh, yeah the enemy was just like yeah you should have stayed on the path you were on and we know that he's the father of lies and a discourager and I remember we went home for Christmas that year and I was in some kind of way I don't just Emotionally, it's just a mess because I just like, what have I done? And now I felt like I was a half, half a semester. My grades were trash that first semester because, uh, yeah, for a lot of different reasons. But I won't get into that. I mentioned last week in my struggle with reading and whatnot. But so anyway, I'm stayed home for Christmas, and I, I'm a, I was not a joy to be around in the joyful season of Christmas, and my, I don't know if my parents remember it this way, I hope they don't, but I was, I felt like I moped around all, all season, and we finally got to the point where I was getting in the van, even driving in the van, thinking, what am I doing, why am I going back here, it's a waste of my time, and as we're going down over the highway towards Gander, towards the airport, my brother was driving in the van, it started to snow and we ended up having a decent amount of slush and it's one of those things can't turn back you know like I said we didn't make a lot of money you can't afford another ticket so we kept driving and eventually uh, we got to a point and the van started to, to sway and we lost control and we went then over a 30 foot embankment backwards the best I can determine is the van spun like this a minivan and then rolled three or four more times after it landed from the 30s and I remember hearing the pop of my brother's driver's side window break. And, and when the van settled, it settled on all four wheels some miraculously. And I remember thank, being thankful that I heard my, mom's cry, my mom crying because in my mind, at least she's alive. <laughs> I looked over at my brother and he looked like somebody gave him a good hard backhand across the face because the window busted in this. <laughs> and I looked at myself and I started start doing this and I'm like, 
And I look back at my mom and all the seats were buckled forward except for hers and she's crying hysterically. She doesn't know what's going on. But I'm looking around, I'm like, I think we're good. And we all got out and stood up and I'm looking, I think we're all good. How in the world did we walk away from this? My dad had a big metal toolbox to be kept in the back of the van. I found that thing 40 feet from the van. I went out in the woods and picked my, 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 my luggage up out of the snow and kept bringing back and wondering what in the world. And I remember at one moment I stood next to the van, next to the sliding door of the van, and God gave me this picture of his two hands. And the words came to my heart. He says, now imagine if, if I can keep you safe through that. What can I do with an everyday life of a pastor? And you're, some people are thinking, well, you think God kicked you off the road? No, I don't necessarily think that. But I'm standing here today, today to tell you that if he did, I'm okay with it. Because it was a wake-up call. God reminded me that he had me. Uh, the next pivotal thing, I went back to, to college and, and I began to get my grades up. I buckled down and said, I'm going to do this. And then somehow I, I met this crazy girl. My earliest memories of her was sitting in the front seat at chapel, this bright green dress that I think used to be her mother's when she was a teenager. Bright white tights. These black, wicked witch of the east kind of looking slippers. You know what a red ruby red, but they were black. And I remember thinking, who in the world is that ping pong ball up there dancing and jumping and worshiping? I didn't even know her at that point. But uh, she ended up on a worship team with, with my friend Andrew Jones, who became one of my dearest friends in life. Um, and kind of met, and our people group started hanging out, and, uh, you know, the whole story about flirting. I say that she flirted with me. She says I flirted with her. I'm right. Started playing ping pong ball together and started watching, and, yeah, had a conversation. Things happened, and God landed me with the right person and was pivotal in dealing with my insecurities. To this day, she still has a way of reminding me of what I can do and what I am good at, rather than letting me focus on what I can't. Yeah, Bible college is a whole other sermon, but through my time in Bible college, I was stretched, mentors and everything. But when we uh, graduated, we interviewed at a couple places, one back home in Newfoundland, which would have been the natural thought that we would go. I would go back home and drag my northern Ontario uh, born and bred wife-to-be soon back to Newfoundland with me. But we met this man named Keith Neal and his wife, Joanne, and we went out and ate. At, uh, they took us to Eastside Marrows, which was a big deciding factor. I'm not going to lie. No, we love pasta. But. but we sat there, and I felt like I was talking to somebody I know my whole life. And I begin to pray because by now I am asking God for wisdom. And I asked him for a mentor and I looked at this man and I was like, oh, this is the guy. I said, but everything about the other position would have been, I'm like, it would have been everything I thought that I would have went, I would have been, you know, 
a youth pastor in a pretty decent-sized church where I would have been living. I would have been very familiar with would have been every reason in the world to go there professionally, per se. But I looked at this man and realized that this is who God has placed in my life, and i got to follow this path. And so we went to a little town called Glencoe and got to work with Keith Neal, and he became a pivotal person in my life and also amazingly pivotal in my wife in uh, helping her step into the realization of her call and accepting it. But when I was there, uh, I met some pretty important people, and um, one of them, you guys are real familiar with this, is Pastor Tom Quinn. Um, I remember, I think, the second year I was in I was in um, Glencoe, we were at conference in Deerhurst, and... and uh, I, I actually brought this up with Pastor Tom a while ago, and he didn't remember it. <laughs> but uh, Pastor Keith introduced me to Tom, and I remember he had this kind of Hawaiian-looking shirt on, and 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 he just stopped. We were walking across the parking lot to go into go into the venue, and he just stopped. He looked at me. He says, "You're going to be a pastor up north one of these days, the lead pastor." He says, "You got it in you." And I'm like, "Whoa, wait, whoa, hold on a second. You know, I'm just getting my feet wet now." And it was a couple years later, we had gone, actually gone through a pastoral transition. I was, I was working with another pastor now, and it began to, some things that happened, and God began to put a spotlight on my, on my, on my own life and saying that, yeah, you've got to remember what Pastor Tom spoke because there's truth in that, and begin to speak. And I remember we were actually leaving to go uh, to interview in another church because I was done with disobedience at this point. God speaks to me, I'm doing it. I don't know, I can't sleep if I don't. That's where I am in my life at this point. But at that point, I was pretty well there as well. And we were in a backyard, and we had this fire in this backyard, and the church had come, and it's like this social event. And uh, there was a gentleman in Glencoe named Colin, Colin Johnson. And he was, when we left Glencoe, I think he was about 84 years old. And he would golf every day four times. Four times a week at least. And so on my day off, I was back then young and, and, and a lot more energy than I have now. I would get up on my day off at 6. I would go golf, play 18 holes, and then he would come on the course at 11 o'clock. I would get in the cart with him, and then we would golf. And that was more of a social thing. He was a mentor, more than a mentor than he would ever realize. He's passed now. Those conversations, he just made me feel confident myself. He just built me up and he also taught me about things, everything man, goodness, he knew what mushrooms to eat on a golf course and what tree was what. <laughs> I loved all that. But we were leaving this backyard. We were going to go to our interview and this was our second interview and he caught up to me somehow with his walker and I remember him yelling, hey young feller! And I went back and I looked at him and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, you hurry back, he said, because you're not going to be here much longer. Man, I am thankful for the people that God puts in your life to speak into your life, to confirm the things that the Spirit has already spoken to you. Amen? And so I'm so thankful for these people that uh, have been brought into my life. Um, but there's also things that have happened in my life that have galvanized my faith and I really understand what it means to be tested and tried as it says in this passage Ministry hasn't been easy. And many things in my life prepared me for the, the greatest test of character that I've ever gone through. Um, 
I'm not going to get into a lot of details of that. That would that would be, yeah, not very purposeful. But in a long story short, my character was tested, questioned. I knew who I was before God, and it caused trouble. And I took it personally, and it was difficult. And I'm thankful for a board that stood by me and supported me, spoke into my life. So grateful for those who did that. And we saw God bring redemption and restoration through that whole process. And I'm just thankful for that. But but I understand. I just, just understand today that I know trials. I know temptations. I know frustrations. I know what it means to be tested in my life. And when you accept the call of God, that doesn't mean the testing and the trial stop. In fact, they probably amp up a bit. Because when you become a threat to the kingdom of the enemy, and you become an asset to the kingdom of God, then the warring enemy does not like that. But that doesn't diminish the authority that God has placed in your life to speak his name in every situation. It doesn't diminish, diminish your opportunity to, in those moments that if you feel like you lack wisdom, to ask for it because he wants to give it to you generously. He doesn't want you to doubt yourself. He definitely doesn't want you to doubt him, to be tossed around like the wind and the waves. He wants you to come and say, God, I'm stuck. Can you flood me with your wisdom? And he gives it generously. I know what generous means to me, but when it says that God gives it generously, it's, I can't imagine the magnitude of that generosity. He's generous enough that he was willing to take all the sins of the world on the cross through grace, through mercy, and provide a way for us to have eternal life. But it's crazy that in the middle of what I would term the toughest part of my ministry life, I met this little girl named Brooklyn. Yeah, that's my daughter. And uh, we had become foster parents. The part I didn't tell you is when we were in Glencoe, we had started the process of, of trying to become pregnant. We wanted to start a family. We got to about eight years into this process, maybe nine years of trying and not being successful and thinking, what in the world? We always wanted to be foster parents, so we said, well, we're going to not, we're not, we wanted to wait, you know, so we could bring foster kids into the family with our own kids. And we had this picture, again, you know, our picture, not God's. And God reminded us that there was kids that needed us. And so we ended up being foster parents, and all together we, we fostered 12 to 13 kids. One of the greatest things I've ever had the pleasure of doing. I get to see uh, pictures online of the little guy, Skyler, was the first kid we brought into our home. And I remember watching him come from like a motionless, kind of like a little guy who seemed to have no personality to a little boy who was grunting and laughing. Uh, it, was, oh, it was transformational. In fact, it's, it's crazy thing fostering. When they were interviewing us, they said, how would you feel if you had a, a baby, a brand new baby in your life for six months? And then we said, well, we got to bring him back to the family. And I said, well, how's, how does over my dead body sound? You know, six months, you can get committed pretty quick. And she laughed, had the gall to laugh on the phone. And she said, you're exactly who we need. 
Because you got to give your all, put the kid first, and forget your own emotions. And so it was shortly after Scholar went back to his family, which we celebrate today, he's doing so good, that uh, they called us and said, oh, by the way, we have this little girl. And I'm just like, she said, look at Carrie and said, say no. So we're not ready. And, she, and they begin to talk about all the struggles that she's been going through. She's dealing with a methadone addiction. They can't seem to get her to calm down. She's more than colic. She's unsettled. She barely sleeps. To get her to sleep, they had to kind of strap her in this like hospital-style stroller and wrap her up in so many things to the point when we finally said, yeah, okay, fine, we'll go meet her. We walked in, and she was strapped up like this, and she was kind of like, she's very, you've seen her, she's very white. And she was kind of pink colored because she, you looked at, she was so stressed out. And they met us at the door. Be careful with the door. Be quiet. Don't wake her up. They were afraid of this one month old. She was a bitty, bitty little thing. And so we went to meet her and we actually came back because we were so, I don't really remember this, but must have been so moved by but we actually agreed that we would come and spend the night with her one week and on a Friday to Saturday night not much to change with her but that day when she came again she was asleep when we got there and we went stay sleep in the hospital with her and when she came in they laid her on the bed next to us into the crib and I looked at her and she still had North Bay Hospital written across her chest because her mother Got upset and took all her clothes. No child a month old should be wearing somebody else's clothes. I don't know if that's a value for you, but it's one for me. It moved. We left and we went and got her clothes before she woke up. Put her in this little pink polka dot onesie. We laid our hands on her. We prayed for the peace though passes all understanding to come into her life and she woke up not a peep not a cry the doctor the nurses came in oh god bless you <laughs> an hour later i just meant generally but right now is good whoo and they came in and they were like, what, what's going on here? What's going on? How in the world? What did you do? And we just we prayed. And we looked at each other and said, it's the peace that passes all understanding. And it was kind of a confirmation that we're in the right place at the right time. We didn't know what we were doing. But I, in hindsight, I look back and even that day, I realized I was looking at my daughter. And uh, went through the, you know, we had her in our life. Oh my gosh, squeak little voice. This tiny little itty bitty firecracker of a, she still is. I love her to pieces. And uh, we got through around two and a half years when the crown wardship was granted. And then we began the process of being able to adopt her. And I remember the day we adopted her, March 21st. My whole family made the trip up. So meaningful for me that they were all there and Carrie Ann's family made the trip down as they celebrated and invited 
this little girl into our family permanently that nobody could take away anymore. To this day, she has this big, uh, well, actually, she chose one this big, but then when she saw the big one like this, she looked at it and said, I want that one. Because you walk into the room where the judge goes through the adoption process and there's stuffed animals everywhere. And she was just like, oh. you know, and then she found out that she gets to pick one. And so she picked one right away and then realized there was a bigger one. And so she got this massive stuffed animal. I should have got some pictures for you. I apologize. Um, this big bear who she named Mr. Rogers after Judge Rogers who presided the day and told us how he was adopted. God has this amazing plan for not just me and Carrie Ann and us, like, in my life, but every one of us. I mean, if you don't take anything from this, I'm not even done the part that, that, that I hopefully is one of those kind of wow moments for you, but but he has a plan. And I'm going to tell you, we languished for 10 years trying to have a child, questioning God, saying, why? Like, there's, and, and uh, I'm reluctant to say that, but as a pastor, you see a lot of people who are having children, and you're like, why? And, you, and, and I'm almost embarrassed to say that. I say, why would you let that person? They're leaving their kids. There's kids in foster care everywhere. There's crazy. Why, why them and not me? And not us. And all that faded away when that little girl came into our life. And the crazy thing about it is the adoption was finalized in March of 21st. And later that year, late July, early August, we found out we were pregnant with all of them. And wouldn't you know, and my blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl, if you haven't noticed, this used to be brown. Darkest brown eyes, darkest brown hair you've ever seen. I have kind of brown hazel eyes. I have Inuit heritage. And we adopted this little blonde-haired, fair-skinned, blue-eyed baby girl. And when Ollie was born, he was much like I was, had dark brown hair and couldn't tell us. But as he got older, he lost all his hair, looked chubby just like Charlie Brown, not going to lie. And then he grew in this beautiful white blonde hair with these beautiful blue eyes. And they even looked like each other. And people were like, oh, I would never have known that, they, that she was adopted if you didn't say anything. They looked the same. And I'm like, yeah, God, God's got it figured out. And I remember I had this moment where God kind of spoke to me and said, and I realized, again, that God is in everything. And I, and I realized that maybe he kept us from 10 years from having a kid because he realized there was a little girl that was going to need saving. And I wouldn't dare change one second of my life because of that. If one second, if I could go back and change anything, and one second would, would mean that I wouldn't have her in my life now, I would not dare for a second tempt it. I'm going to close. There's a lot, obviously, in this that maybe you'll hear more about it as, 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 we, as time goes on. 
But let me talk about the results so far. I, I, I would be remiss, actually, if I didn't mention the, the pivotal role that Pastor Blake Davidson has played in my life as well. I, I Before we came here, I, I worked as an associate pastor for Blake David, Davidson, but he walked us with us and got to celebrate this whole adoption story with us. We were able to give our testimony at a camp when he was regional director. He's brought us in the lead worship at camp and just been available and one of my best friends, to be honest. And he was the right mentor number two. <laughs> Keith Neal would be my first one. And uh, Blake Davidson. I just want to acknowledge his role in my life. But the results so far, number one i got to say is joy regardless. Consider it pure joy. It's not so hard for me to say today than it was back then. Because when you go through the trials and you go through the tests, and you persevere, and you realize that God is there. And He helps you to stand. And He helps you to solidify your faith. And He helps you to walk with Him. And He helps you to to be present and realize that He's in every single detail of your life. You can consider it pure joy. When you face trials and realize that maybe, even maybe, you're being tested today because the enemy considers you a threat to his kingdom. Maybe all this is the enemy trying to derail me because he knew that one day I was going to be at Warden Full Gospel Assembly and he was going to see the biggest revival that Toronto has ever seen. Whew. Not because of me. I don't know. I believe that. Do you? I still believe in revival. Revival to me is people coming to know Jesus. I believe in that. Man, if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't be up here right now. I'm still living out the story. There's still things that I'm like, oh, God, I don't know why you're doing this or why you won't let me do this or why this, that, and whatever other thing. But then, you know, I sit back and again, I consider it pure joy. Because God's got a plan. And he's aware of the details. Secondly, you know, I, I have this revelation of, of wisdom. I found that when you do ask for wisdom with focus and determination towards the will of God, he pours it out. It does not come in little drips. He'll douse you in his wisdom. If you make yourself acquainted with his will, if you understand where his will it's spoken about in scripture and how it says that, you know, even the phrase from the, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God has plans for you eternally. And so I don't know what circumstances you might be in today, but if you lack wisdom, if you lack direction, if you feel like the pull is pulling you away from what you know God is calling, ask Him, will you? Jesus, I need your wisdom. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to me. Make your voice so distinct to me that I don't confuse it with anybody else's. And thirdly, he's reminded me of how important it is to be single-minded with that purpose in my life. Focus. And how important it is to have faith which equals confidence. 
The opposite of a double-minded and unstable person is a single-minded and faithless person. Faithful person, pardon me. The opposite to a double-minded and unstable person is a single-minded, faithful, confident person. And I think sometimes people get that confidence mixed up and, they, and, and sometimes in, in our position, sometimes if you're not careful, you can shift into arrogance. But I love Hebrews 11.1 1, because it reminds us of what real faith is. And it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. It is the assurance about what we do not see. And some people like to focus on what we do not see, but I like to focus on the word assurance. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for. Jesus died and he rose again. So I am confident that resurrection is in my future. If he doesn't come before that day, I would much rather just be taken. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I'd go right now. But I'm thankful also that he's gracious because I know a lot of people still need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. People who are struggling with doubt, people who are double-minded, and people who I know know better. And I think he's patient. And so I'd say, wait, Lord Jesus. Let more people come. I'm going to be with you one day, but if you can just wait and hold off, let more people come first. My hope is that I continue to become the evidence or the proof provided by the existence or the appearance of something. And that that something is the apparent presence of God in my life. A reflection of who He is and a realization of who He's called me to be. My hope, again, I repeat, is that I continue to become the evidence or the proof provided by the existence or the appearance of Jesus Christ reflected in my life. And that's my hope for this church. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I, if I was to talk about your faithfulness in my life in an exhaustive manner, Lord, we'd be here till next week and I'd start probably still wouldn't be done. I love the phrase in John, at the end of John, where it says, and, and you did many, uh, he did many other things that are not recorded in these books, Lord Jesus. The testimony we have for you when you're on this earth is, is incomplete. There's so much more that you did, and I'm so excited to get to heaven and find out all those things and celebrate those things and meet the people that you touched, you transformed. And so, Lord, I pray today, O oh God, that above all, that people would be encouraged courage to consider a pure joy when they are tested in the trials that they may go through. Father, that they be courageous enough to ask for wisdom and to ask again and to ask again and to be persistent and to come to you and say, Jesus, lead and direct me and guide me, Lord. You said you would give it generously, Lord. Give it. Pour it out upon us, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord for that truth. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the ability to be faithfully confident. Confident in you, not in myself.
and that I would be single-mindedly focused, Lord Jesus. Remind us today that we can be focused on who you have planned for us to be and that even when we don't understand all the details, that we would walk confidently in the path you have for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you today, oh God, that at one point you did get a hold of me and I did accept this call of God in my life. Your faithfulness, faithfulness, so amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we're going to close this service by worshiping you and just singing about your great love, Lord Jesus. So be glorified in our midst today. Be glorified in our lives live for you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just worship in together before we leave.